0: This morning, I received a text from Pastor Tom letting me know that the Albanian mission team is doing great. They're uh, they're settling into their uh, hotel and getting situated nicely. They're excited about the ministry there. And in a little bit, we're going to pray for them. But he did mention that uh, Matt Jantz, who, is, uh, who has been on staff here at Woodridge and went over a little earlier, has been doing great. And uh, God's really been working through Matt to preach the gospel and to encourage the church there. So... We're excited with that good report. Today's sermon is going to cover a very large section of Scripture. We've been going through verse by verse the Ten Commandments and today we're shifting out of uh, that approach to look at almost three chapters of Scripture. We're going to be looking at Exodus 20 verses 18 through Exodus 23 verse 19. To get an overview of this passage, I'm going to read the first part and then we'll turn to the last section of the Scripture. And so if you would, for the last time, turn to page 40 in the Pew Bible or Exodus 20, last time in a while, or for a while at least, and uh, open your Bibles to Exodus 20, verse 18. After I read this first section, we're going to turn to Exodus 23, verse 10. <coughs> <coughs> Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21, six. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be your masters. Be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will no I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Exodus twenty three, verses ten through nineteen. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beast of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips." Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the firstfruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before me, the Lord, before the Lord God, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we begin by lifting up our brothers and sisters in Albania that have left our church to do gospel work there. We thank you for their lives and how you've brought them out of darkness into your light, into fellowship with you through Christ. Father, we pray that that they would be safe and, and that you would keep them alive and bring them back safe. But Father, most of all, we pray that you would make them bold for the sake of the gospel. That they would proclaim the gospel to those caught up in, in sin slaves to sin and, and caught up in darkness, caught up in worshiping false gods. That, Father, you would do in them things that are so hard to, to happen sometimes when we are caught in our routines and our day-to-day lives. Father, free them from the grips of the mundane or, or things that have a hold on their lives so that they might enjoy you and make much of Christ while they are there in Albania. Father, we do pray also for ourselves that when they come back and we hear stories of how you're being glorified in Albania, that we would be refreshed and pulled out of of living for ourselves and live more and more for the sake of of Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us a greater burden as a church for the nations, that we would send more missionaries and we would plant more churches and we as a church would, would gather with the other churches and proclaim the gospel more boldly. Father, we also lift up our Albanian brothers and sisters that are with our our brothers and sisters from this church. We pray that they would be refreshed and strengthened and continue to plant churches and proclaim the gospel. Father, we thank you for this weekend that celebrates the independence we have as a country and the freedoms that, that that gives us to worship you. Father, we mostly and always celebrate our great independence that we have as Christians. Every day is an Independence Day for the Christian. We have been freed from sin and hell so that we might worship and commune with you. Father, now would you please bless the preaching of your word. May you use your word and your spirit working with your word and through your word to make us more like Christ, that you would be glorified. May you bring life where there is death. May you be working richly and mightily among us for our joy and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a section of scripture like the one that we find ourselves in this morning can be very confusing. We read it and wonder why God would prohibit Israel from making altars with hewn or cut stones and from putting steps on them. Wouldn't cut stones make the altar more beautiful and the steps on the altar more convenient? Why would God give Israel regulations for slavery instead of simply abolishing it? After all, even if it was a, a different form of slavery that, that they practice in Israel than the type that was practiced in America and, and that most of us first think of, it was not the ideal situation for someone to live in. And why would God command his people not to boil a kid that is a young goat in its mother's milk? Though it's a very odd recipe, one that I would not like to eat, there are other weird foods, and personally, I know this is going to offend some of you. I would put mayonnaise, ketchup, and hot dogs in the, in the same category as, as this weird and odd recipe. Why would God forbid his people from eating this and not other things? Now, even if we answer all the whys that we might ask of this passage, and with a solid commentary or two we can, it's hard to see how this passage can be applied to our lives as New Covenant believers, as Christians. After all, most of us are not in the altar making business. We are opposed to slavery and that issue has been settled. And if you're like me, you have no desire to even drink goat's milk, much less boil a baby goat in it and eat it. So how can we understand this passage and apply it? Despite the difficulty we might have with this passage, it's important for us to remember what God says to the Apostle Paul in Second Timothy three sixteen and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, even passages like the one that we find ourselves in today are profitable for the Christian, revealing to us who God is and are used by the Holy Spirit. I I trust this is true and I hope it is true for you today in this passage That even passages like this are used by the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. That is to make us more like Jesus Christ. Now to understand and begin to apply this passage, it's important to understand what this section of Scripture is. It's a collection of commands and laws, case laws and instructions that make up what is known as the book of the covenant. That's what Scripture calls this section of Scripture, the book of the covenant. This book, along with the Ten Commandments, was was given by God to Israel at Sinai and it laid out the requirements of God's covenant with Israel. This passage was a God-given tool that Israel used to worship God, to maintain justice among themselves, and to live their day-to-day lives. It was a guide for everybody from priests, judges, and farmers in how to fulfill their specific God-given responsibilities in a way that glorified God. So then how should we, New Testament believers who find ourselves in a very different culture, under a very different government, apply this Old Testament Israelite passage to ourselves because it is part of Scripture. It is God's Word for us as well. I want to begin by giving you this illustration. You don't have to be a photography expert to know that there's a time to zoom in when you're taking a picture and there's a time to zoom out. Recently, one of our sons uh, marked a, a great milestone in his life. He lost the front, one of his front upper teeth. And, you know, the, the side teeth are fine. You know, that's, that's progressing. But when you see a, a kid missing one of their two top front teeth, you know that, that kid, they're reaching milestones in their lives, right? Well, that happened for one of our sons. And so when it happened at dinner, I immediately did what most parents would do, pulled out my iPhone, right? Because I needed to, to let all... All of our family, mainly grandma and nana and granny and, and the aunts, know that it finally came out. And so what I did is I pulled out my iPhone, and not being a great expert photographer, I knew enough, I needed to zoom in because I didn't want an, a, a distant shot because if, if I did that, they might not even see the, the new hole in his mouth. So I had to zoom in, and I got just a headshot, and you could see right there that, yep, there's a gap between his two of his teeth and there it was. He's missing one of his teeth. And and you know what? None of the the men that I found out later on complained that I didn't send it to them. seems that women like to know these things more than men do. But zooming in gave them a better picture of what had happened at dinner. But when taking a family picture at the park, if we recruit an unsuspecting dog walker, this has often happened, I'm sure you do this too, with your family, you want everybody in the picture. So somebody... So that, that looks reliable, that you, you, you know isn't probably going to take your camera or your phone. You, you kind of recruit them over and you say, hey, can you take a picture for us? And w- when we're taking a family picture, we don't want that, that, that recruited family photographer to all of a sudden zoom in on grandma's forehead, right? I love grandma's forehead, but I don't need a picture of grandma's forehead hanging up in my living room. We want a picture uh, that's, that's zoomed out enough that we can get everybody's face, at least everybody's face, and hopefully all of our children looking at the camera, and maybe, by almost a miracle, everybody kind of smiling. We don't want Grandma's forehead. We want the whole family in the picture. Likewise, it's helpful at times to zoom into certain passages in Scripture, like we did when we went through the Ten Commandments. And other times it can be more beneficial to zoom out to get a better view of a passage and see the whole picture of it. We don't want to get lost in grandma's forehead, or in our case this morning, in goat's milk. That's why I'm going to zoom out this morning so that we can better see the big picture of this passage and then apply it to our lives as the new covenant people of God. Now this passage deals heavily on law. So it's important to begin with a a very brief but important overview of the different types of laws that we find in the Old Testament, all of which we encounter in this passage. Theologians throughout church history have put the Old Testament or Old Covenant laws into three basic categories. Now, this could be what you might consider a dry section of the sermon. However, brothers or sisters, this section and me going through this is, is so essential for you not being confused about things and also as you, as you continue to try to glorify God and, and read through Scripture. So please stick with me as I work through these three types of laws, civil, ceremonial, and moral. The first category of law is civil. Israel was originally a theocracy meaning it was a nation whose government was directly ruled by the God of the Bible. Every other theocracy is is not a genuine Bible-sanctioned theocracy. There have been attempts in other religions and even by Christians to form a theocracy. This is the one and only theocracy that we find sanctioned in Scripture. Another one will come at the end when Jesus returns to rule and reign forever over all beings and his people in the new creation. A theocracy, this theocracy that Israel was in, gave, gave the Israelite government a unique divine right to oversee everything in every area of life. There was no separation of church and state. Israel's judges, rulers and religious leaders were to punish not just crime, but sin, because that's what all crime was: sin. Civil law determined the consequences for everything from murder, theft, sexual immorality to the rights of slaves. And restitution in cases of an accident or damage to someone's property. God communicated civil, along with ceremonial and moral law, directly to Israel through prophets like Moses. Often they were all given at the same time, and that's what we see in this passage. The Israelite civil law is a category of law that has passed away, it was bound up with the old covenant and Israel's theocratic government a government that ended with the coming of Jesus Christ. God no longer rules through one physical nation with cultural or physical boundaries, but through a people made up of all nations. That is through the church of Jesus Christ. There's been a change. A people that Christ came to purchase and free from sin and to justify by faith. And it is through and in Christ church where the kingdom of God is proclaimed and made visible here on earth. Jesus announced this pivotal change in places like Matthew 21, 43 when he said to the Jews, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And that people is the church made up of Gentiles and Jews. Though the civil law is no longer binding on Christians, as Old Testament professor David Murray writes, the general principles of justice underlying these laws can still be applied in appropriate ways in our own day. End quote. In fact, they have informed many of our own and other countries' civil laws, and they contain helpful direction on what it means to be just and fair, calling for compassion to foreigners and the protection and care of widows, orphans, and the poor. Now, the second category of law is the ceremonial laws. It contained all the laws that guided the Israelites in their tabernacle and then their temple worship. There are what Professor Murray calls permanent moral principles in the ceremonial laws. But he goes on to state the actual ceremonies themselves were abolished when Jesus replaced the tabernacle and the temple with himself. This means like the civil, the ceremonial laws have passed away. Why? Why has this change occurred? Because Jesus Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law and he was the one that all of these laws pointed to. The New Testament authors make this clear throughout the New Testament scriptures. The book of Hebrews makes it clear over and over again. And if you're one of the women in in the Young Moms or in the, the study group, you saw this over and over again. The author of Hebrews connecting all of the Old Testament civil laws to Christ and how he has fulfilled them. In John 1, John tells us that Jesus has come and tabernacled among us permanently. The Gospels tell us that Jesus is the true temple that that we commune with God through and he is the temple that was destroyed as he said it would be on Good Friday and then raised by God three days later on Easter. He said that. He is the temple of God. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial laws in that all the sacrificial offerings tied to the ceremonial laws pointed directly to him. He is not only the final and perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins truly, finally, perfectly. He is also our great and true high priest who lives, as we sang, to intercede for us. So he's all the categories, he's all of these things. He is Jesus, God in flesh. This is why the ceremonial law has been done away with. The glorious one who they pointed to has come. They were only shadows, but Jesus is the substance. This is why Paul writes to the Colossian believers this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You need to understand this. You Think about a shadow. If, if you look at your shadow, depending on how the light is hitting it, that shadow is going to mildly be something like you. you know, it might be a little smaller. It might be a little bigger. It points to you. It's connected to you, but it's not exactly you. All of those ceremonial laws were the shadow But the substance, the one that that the shadow is connected to and ultimately pointing us to, is Jesus Christ. He is the substance. This is wonderful. This is glorious. This is how we can see all of these Old Testament laws and types and shadows pointing forward and having a purpose for us as Christians beyond just, oh, that's interesting history. No, there's shadows and types and figures that point us who trust in Christ back to Jesus. Now the third category of law is the moral law. Moral law, unlike ceremonial and civil, are those laws that are binding throughout all time for all people. This law reflects God's character, revealing to us who God is and who we are to be as his image bearers. God gave his moral law to us from the beginning. He gave it to Adam and Eve. He gave it in the Ten Commandments. It's summarized when he gave it to Moses at Mount Sinai. And Jesus over and over again clarifies and tells us what God's law is. He's elevating it, but he's really just stripping away all of all of the the lies and the add-ons that that religious Jews had added to it and says, this is the heart of, of God's law. Here it is. And we worked our way through that in the Ten Commandments. And God's moral law, Paul says in Romans 2, 14, and 15, is even found traces of it on hearts of people who do not know God. Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. This is the law of God that remains, the moral law. Though the moral law remains God's standard, we know that we have all broken it, or you should know that, But Jesus Christ fulfills it for those who trust in him. Those who repent and trust in his finished work are saved by grace through faith. Jesus, by his obedient life and his sin-atoning death on the cross, both keeps the law perfectly for all who turn to him, and at the same time he bears the wrath, God's righteous wrath, against their sin. He does both. Now having been born again and given new hearts that have new desires, the Holy Spirit works in us to help us obey God's moral law, not so that we might be justified. That's the misuse of God's law. That's where we find passages in the New Testament saying, don't use the law for that. The law brings death. You cannot be justified by keeping the law. But because we have been justified, We love the God who loved us first, and we seek to obey his commands, continuing to repent and trust in Jesus when we fail and we sin. So we have a different relationship to God's law because of Jesus. As Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said in a sermon, if the grace you have received does not help you to keep the law, you have not received grace. Grace changes us. We have been adopted in Christ. We look at God's command that reveals his character, shows us our sin, points us to the Savior, tells us how to live differently. It brought death, but now it shows us how to live. Hopefully, you have or are beginning to see just how important it is for a Christian to understand the different types of Old Covenant law. If you haven't, I'm going to show you why this is so important here. Having a basic understanding of these things can help you to avoid things like legalism, cheap grace, and cults. Legalism says that you have to keep the law or you are saved by grace plus by doing the works rather than understanding now that you have been saved by grace, your heart wants to do the works and so I have friends that have fallen back into legalism friends that that I worshiped with in college and and we were growing as as disciples together, and now they are returning to old covenant laws, believing that if they if they Refrain from eating certain things, if they, if they do certain things that, that the Israelites did, then they can have a more intimate relationship with God. And though many of them would not say, oh, if you don't do them, then then it's fine, it's just my choice. They actually, they actually do that by how they live their lives and how they talk to believers who don't keep these laws that have passed away in the coming of Christ. If you don't get how the law works, you're going to have a, a cheap view of grace. You're going to think, hey, I'm saved. Like many of us know these and, and many of us were formerly this, this. This would describe us. Hey, I'm a Christian so now I can just live my life however I want. Now we know that, that the law calls us to holy living. And if you understand these, these basic breakdowns in the law, you can, you can battle against the lies that, that might come in through cults. Oftentimes, it is through the misuse or misunderstanding of the law that many professing believers fall into these destructive pitfalls. They, they may not... I believe in the, the perseverance of the saints that once saved, you cannot ultimately be lost. But you know what I don't want to do as a Christian, and I don't want you to do, is waste five or ten years of your life because you're caught up in a misunderstanding of the law. You you will not be lost. God does not lose his sheep. Christ came to set the captives free and he brings them into freedom. But but why wander for five or ten years in, in misunderstanding when when you could grow and enjoy the gospel more? And part of of not doing that is going to be understanding the law. So this might be dry to some of you. It might be, you know, you're not going to talk about this in, when you get in the car, but it's so foundational that you understand these things. Now another reason why understanding the different types of laws is important is that it can be in, essential in conversations with non-Christians. Let me explain why. There are laws like, found, like the ones found in Leviticus, Leviticus 11.7, 11, 11, that forbid Israelites from eating pork and Leviticus 19.19, which forbids Israelites from wearing mixed material clothes. Seeing how most evangelical Christians that I know eat bacon and wear shirts made with cotton and polyester, a non-Christian who comes across these Old Testament laws may not only think that Christians have to keep them, but might conclude that Christians inconsistently keep law. They pick and choose which laws they're going to keep and which laws they want others to keep and which laws they don't have to keep. When the reality is that certain laws, including those forbidding pork and mixed materials, are civil or ceremonial and have been, in the coming of Jesus Christ, fulfilled, they've passed away. These old covenant laws are not part of the new covenant that God made in Christ with all those who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus alone to save them. Friends, understanding this will help you dialogue with those who disagree with you on certain issues, especially those that are coming to the forefront of our minds as Christians in this country. They're going to charge you with, with not keeping all of God's law and saying, you're, 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 not, you're not keeping this law, you're eating bacon, but you think this is sin. And if you understand this, you can dialogue with them and say, wait a second, all you need to do is understand the covenants. They might, you might lose them right away. All right, covenant, yeah, big word, I'm out. But, but if they're willing to talk with you, you can point to this and say, we Christians are in the new covenant. I'm not held to those same ceremonial and civil laws because they are fulfilled in Christ. It's practical, helpful. Jesus alone can save us in the new covenant.'" What this means is that though God calls for his people to keep his law, what that law is for the Christian is not the exact same law that Israel was required to keep. With this understanding of the Old Testament law in mind, I have three principles. They're, they're going to get longer as we go on, but I'll still end on time. The first one's very brief. The second one I'm going to spend a little bit of time on. And the last one, the most amount of time on. These are three principles to take from this passage and apply to our lives as Christians who desire to live as the people of God. The first which I will spend the least amount of time on, but is equally as important as the other two, is that our worship is to be God-centered. Our worship is to be God-centered. From the laws about the altars not being made with hewn stones and without steps, to the sacrifices, the Sabbaths, and the festivals, it all taught the Israelites that the God who had saved them was to be first and that their worship of God was to be centered on God. Now you might say, that is obvious. It's worship, after all. Where the people of God were to worship God. Does this really need to be one of the three principles that you're going to pull from this passage? And I would argue that it is. Because we can see in Israel's history that their worship so often, they're so prone to this, became about them and other gods. They gather together, even while Moses is receiving the law of God, they're making a golden calf and worshiping God through it, adding something visible to what God has said should be done without these tangible false idols. And just like them, we are prone to do the same thing. Though we may do it different, in different ways, we're prone to the same thing. The goal in worship is not relevance, it's not entertainment, or to be seeker-sensitive. It is to magnify the surpassing glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's the goal of worship. Now, this has great effects for our hearts. It becomes, we get the fruits of that true worship. Why are so many bored with God in our country it's because they have been given relevance and entertainment and junky theology they have a low view and low reverence for god and so the corrective to that is to establish a high view of god and that starts with god's people having god-centered worship that's why despite the calls to be more relevant and to cater to the culture yes we can there's certain neutral things and there are things that we can do that that are not culturally driven whether it's having our words up on screens or using certain instruments. But when we get to this place where we become more pragmatic, thinking we can cultivate faith, not through God-centered worship and proclaiming the gospel, but through our own means, we've gone off. And over and over again in in this passage, we see that worship is to be God-centered. It's amazing if you look through church history. Again, instruments are fine. You know, new and exciting music that's good sounding and is rich in theology, wonderful. Screens, fine. Speakers, all fine in and of themselves. But they are not essential. You look through church history, I think about England and Bunyan and and how it was illegal for him to preach the gospel because he would not sign off on the the Church of England's statement. And and it was a statement that that he totally saw as contradicting the gospel. And so what did he do And, and other godly men and women? They gathered in fields and they would climb up. Bunyan would climb up into a certain tree and just preach the gospel. He would just open the Bible and preach the word. And you know what would happen? People would come to faith, and God would be glorified, and they'd sing hymns. And it was simple, and it was rich, and it was God-centered, and God blessed it. And this passage calls for us as the new covenant people of God to maintain that principle, God-centered worship, having a big view of God. We cannot dumb down God because if we do that, who wants to worship a God just like us? We need to set before our minds and our hearts and those who we love who are not yet trusting in Christ a big, glorious, awesome God. Not a small, American, man-made God that fits with our culture and what we want, but a big God that demands the lordship of those who trust in him. The second one is that God calls his people to be just. If we were to zoom in on this passage and go through each one of the commands, case laws and instructions, we would see that so many of them, maybe even a majority of them, deal with the issue of justice. This is significant because this passage is something like Israel's constitution. And in it, one of God's greatest concerns for his people is that they are a just people. That should say something to us. From their dealings with one another to their interactions with outsiders, every day for the Israelites was to be marked by justice towards those they interacted with. Recently, in fact, as I was driving home from, from being up north with my family, yesterday I heard this, a sermon by apologist and evangelist Ravi Zacharias. And he said this in the sermon, and, and I believe it is applicable in this justice, this call for God's people to be justice. He said, Christians should be people of such high integrity that even their enemies trust them. And can you imagine the people that hate you, that 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 think that you're a fool and 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 totally disagree with you, who you are because you're a Christian, would say, you know, what? I can trust them with my money. I I I hate them. I totally disagree with them. But they are such just people. That guy, that that woman is is so just is a a person of such high integrity that they can hold on to my money and I know that I'll get it back. God's word continually tells God's people that in a world full of injustice, his people are to be a just people. Think about the implications for this in your own life. Conversations. I mean, we saw some of this. This was played out in in God's uh, commandments, the Ten Commandments and us not being liars, and us protecting the reputation of our neighbors. But again, it's played out here. How does this affect how you deal with other people? Whether it's in business, whether it's at the store, it should affect it all. You are to be a just person. You find money, you're looking for whose it is. You're not saying, I want to stick this in my pocket instantly. You may get to stick it in your pocket when nobody claims it, But you are just, so just that 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 dollar, you're you're, you're scrounging through the store. You're you're looking for, did you drop a dollar? You sure you didn't? You're, You're becoming an investigative reporter, right? Who dropped the dollar? You're to be so just as a people of God that you can be trusted even by your enemies. After all, we Christians know and affirm the biblical truth that we were guilty of the greatest injustice, one of cosmic proportion. We sinned and fell short of the glory of God, and though we deserve God's wrath, God justified us by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood and whom we have received by faith. We we recognize that we are the most unjust people apart from Christ and yet Christ came and paid for all of our sins, all of our unjust living, all of our sin against others and against God. This gracious work of God not only displays God's love to us, which it does, but as Romans 3:25 and 26 says, it displays God's justice to the world because it shows God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is Paul saying in this passage? That in the gospel, in, in, in thinking about what God has accomplished in Christ at the cross, God both displays his love and because he is holy, because it is a de- definitive character trait of God, his holiness, he deals with injustice. And the way he deals with that is at the cross through his son. He is totally loving and totally just at the very same time. God is a just God. Church, when we are just, we image our God who is perfectly just. And God is passionate for justice. We see that in this scripture. He is passionate for justice. And we know that to be true because of the gospel, because of what has saved us. He maintains his justice by not forgetting about our sin, but by dealing with it, by pouring his wrath, His justice out on his son. In the gospel, God both loves sinners and maintains his justice. Atoning, he is the atoning justifier of the one who has faith in him. And so we, church, are to be people marked by justice. Lastly, the one that I'll spend the most time on is that we are reminded from this passage that God's people are to be different. And I put in my notes quotation marks. We are to be different. Now by different, I don't mean that we Christians are to be unnecessarily weird. I'm not saying that Christians are to dress funky. You know, wear bright colors and look goofy in front of everybody. That's not what I'm saying. Now you might do that. And you know what? That might be actually cool in some cultures. But that's not what this scripture is calling for God's people to do. And I'm not saying that we should think that we are in any, in any way better in and of ourselves than non-Christians. That's not what it means to be different. What I mean is that the civil and ceremonial regulations found in this passage were partly given by God to Israel to set them apart from all the other nations that they, they were surrounded by. That's part of the purposes of, of these laws about goat's milk and, and these laws. Well, that, that has another part of it in, in false worship. But all these other additional laws, that was part of the purpose of them. The other nations around them didn't care whether they, they were people who ate pork They didn't didn't wear clothes that were made of just one fabric. They they wore clothes made of any number of fabrics. They didn't rest on a Sabbath because that would have meant meant that they were giving up money. They were giving up a day that they could earn more for themselves. These commands and laws, along with the others we find in today's passage, were were used by God to cause his people to live differently than the nations surrounding his people. And God wanted his people to live differently because they represented him to the world. And God is different than all the other false gods that exist in the world. And so his people are to be different than all the other people in the world. Though we are not under all the same laws that set the old covenant people of God apart, this same principle, that of being set apart, remains true today for God's new covenant people, the church. We are to be set apart, church. And what that word means is to be holy. That's what set apart means. We are to be holy, in 1 Peter 1, the Apostle Peter says this very thing to Christians who were struggling because they were being persecuted for being different from the world around them. They were being tempted to, to not be different because they, they, they realized, you know, if we're not different, then we'll stop getting persecuted. So there's that temptation coming. Now they held strong. God used these words from the Apostle Peter to encourage them to, to be different for the sake of Christ. But there's a temptation there. Peter writes... These things to encourage the persecuted church. 1 Peter 1, 14-21. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile If you are a Christian, you were saved from something to be something. That is fundamental to who you are as a Christian. You were saved from something to be something. You were saved from slavery to sin and eternal death to be a follower of Christ who lives their lives to glorify God. A real change has occurred in you. You were born again and you are to live differently because of what God has done in Christ for you. How can you not? Before Christ, you were living your life one way. You were living for your own glory. You were living to however you thought to live and however you thought you would be satisfied, whether it was to pursue sinful pleasures or those pleasures that that the world has said are okay and not crimes. And so you lived your life that way and then you met Christ. God revealed his glory to you in the face of Jesus Christ. You repented of your sin and trusted in him. Are you now going to live exactly like you did before you trusted in Christ, before you were born again? That's foolishness. This is just logical. It makes sense. After meeting Christ, you live differently. You think differently. You act differently. Your whole life is different because you have been born again. You are a new creation. You have a new heart with new desires. And yet we are so often tempted, just like the early church and the church throughout history, to just fit in. I think this is one of the most pressing issues for the church today is that we just, we just want to get comfortable. And in this nation, still, even with what's going on in, in the government and, and, and all of the laws that are happening, we still can just fit in. We don't want to be rejected and we don't want to be called names, whether it be fool, stupid, unloving, or small-minded. Because it's not fun being mocked, ridiculed, or rejected. And no one likes being left out. I mean, no one wants to be the last kid picked, right? Playing kickball. You don't want to be the last one. No one wants to be the one that didn't get past the note that day in class. No one likes to be the one that 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 didn't get that everybody else got raises. You weren't the you weren't the one that you don't want to be that that guy or that lady. And so there's a temptation to just go with the culture, to fit in, or at least at the very least, to, to not speak up. To not proclaim the gospel. To not say, this is sin and God calls it sin. It's clear. You can twist it. You can can make it whatever you, you want, but it's still sin. It's clear. You can't read this passage and say that that's not sin. But it's tempting to just be quiet. To gather and to have our little holy huddle and to just do our own thing. Other times we may try not to be different or we minimize the difference that comes in in trusting in Christ out of a genuine desire to win souls for Christ by making Christianity more acceptable and less intimidating to non-Christians. We say things like, you just got to try Jesus. Jesus is not some sample at Sam's Club for you to just try. Jesus is the Lord of life who, who created all of us and who all of creation was created for. You don't try that God. He doesn't, get tried, he gets submitted to, he gets trusted in, he gets followed, he gets obeyed. As Pastor Eric Raymond writes in a recent article on the Gospel Coalition, those who profess to follow Jesus need to remember that what is inscribed on the threshold as someone comes into the Christian church. Jesus is quite clear in his call for and cost of discipleship. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9:23. That doesn't fit with trying. That fits with leaving your old life, dying to self and fighting that corrupt, sinful flesh that tries to come back. My my sons are in this kicking stage. Like they secretly kick each other all the time. And even when we're in the room, they kick each other and think they can get away with it. And if you're like me, if you're a Christian parent who tries to, to, to apply the gospel in everyday situations, I, I've been struggling with how do I somehow just not say, that's evil, stop it, just don't do that, and, and go to the corner and think about your sin. That, that's, that's my go-to response, I need something more. And so as I was preaching this sermon, in the first service, it came to me. What I need to say, my son, when he's kicking one of his brothers is this. Stop kicking him because that's sin and start kicking sin because it's causing you to sin. Stop. You get get my thinking here? We have to fight sin and this temptation to do what what is so opposing to God and his glory. We have to fight it. We have to kick it away. We have to kick this temptation off to fit in and to minimize the call of the gospel. Because, friends, the gospel calls for those who believe it to be different than they were before. The Christian who has been justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ has abandoned their old life to pursue Christ and now desires, ultimately in their heart, to live a life that glorifies Jesus Christ. This is not super Christian stuff. This is the basic Christian life. If you are a Christian, you are saved and are called to be different from the world for the glory of God and for the sake of the world. You are to be salt, light, and truth in a world that needs to be preserved, is caught up in darkness, and believes Satan's lies. If we are just like everybody else, living exactly like them, we are not going to be salt, light, and truth. We're going to be nothing. Church, this passage filled with civil, ceremonial, and moral law calls for us who have been saved by grace to exalt God in our worship and to live just and holy lives. Let's pray. Oh, Father, who is worthy of our worship, fully, totally, completely worthy of our worship, we praise you for your word. And how all of it calls us to be in awe of you and stirs, or it should stir our hearts, to praise and make much of Christ our Savior who went to the cross to redeem us so that we could worship and commune with you. Father, I pray for all of us and for us as a church that we might be pursuing justice in our day-to-day lives and in whatever areas and avenues you allow us to do that, that we might be marked by justice, being a just people. And Father, may you cause your people to live holy lives so that the world would know that the gospel is real and it changes people and so that some of these lost sinners might turn to Christ. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.